Parashas Noach doesn't just begin at the beginning of the story of the Mabu. Noach's mission really began 120 years before that. The Pasuk tells us that 120 years before the, the Mabu actually happened, Hashem comes to Noach and reveals the plan for the future. There's going to be a flood. Hashem is going to destroy all the Rishoyim. And Nayach is entrusted with the mission of building a Teva. A Teva which is meant to save himself, his family, one of each of the species of animals, so that no species becomes extinct. And that way Hashem can, so to speak, restart the world after destroying the Rishoyim that were alive at the time of the Mabu. And how did Nayak spend 120 years? Not just building the Teva. There was no reason for the construction of the Teva to take 120 years. Nayak spent the time demonstrating to the public that he was building the Teva. Imagine in the public square of the town, wherever Nayak was, he starts nailing boards together. People stop to watch. Noach, what are you doing? I'm building a teva. I'm building a ship. A ship in the middle of a city. Noach, this isn't the beach. This isn't the coast. I'm building a ship because there's going to be a flood. A flood? No one had ever heard of the word before. There never had been a flood. Noach, are you crazy? Yes, I'm building the ship. Why? So when the flood comes, I'll be able to save myself. And I can imagine how it looked like, just like today, when someone starts doing something, people watch, all the children hang, gather around to see what's going on. That's the first day. And the second day, Nach still building a ship. People going past again, they saw him yesterday, Nach, he's still doing it. They shake their heads. And the third day, and the next week, and the next month, And every time people see him, Nach, what are you doing? You're building a ship of marble. Really, when's this marble coming exactly? In 120 years' time. How do you think people thought about Nach? The master thought he was crazy. He's decided in 120 years it's going to be a marble. And now he's building a ship. It's, it sounds ridiculous. Imagine. Imagine for a second, even having known that there was a marble once already in history. Someone did that today. Imagine you'd be walking through Kikashabas <coughs> and you'd see a group of people starting to nail wood together on the side of the street. What are you doing? Building a ship. Why a ship? There's going to be a flood. Yishalayim is going to get destroyed. You take them seriously? There's no indication of such a thing. There's no history of such a thing. And we're not talking about Jews. We're talking about Goyim, Ovedavodizara, people who were the very Rishoyim that the Torah is talking about deserve getting destroyed. They were going to take Nayak seriously. They were going to see him and think, wow, this is real. This, this, this marble is actually happening. 
Exactly the opposite. You know there's a place in London. It's called Speaker's Corner. Where anyone who wants to get up can talk and say what they like. And there's always a collection of passerby or tourists to people who are just watching, looking for entertainment, who are willing to listen to what people have to say. A react that collection of all different countries, nationalities, religions even. Imagine getting up publicly and saying, gentlemen and ladies, let's build a, uh, a, a big ship here in central London. The world's about to be flooded. How many passerby are going to stop and take you seriously? Who's even going to think that you're talking, what you're talking is rational? If you were going around publicizing such a message with no proof, with no explanation why you know it's going to happen, and an event which is going to take place a hundred years in the future, except for perhaps some conspiracy theorists, everybody's going to think you're crazy. I'm sure that's what they thought about Noach also. Look at the facts. How many people did do tshuva as a result? How many people did come back? And the answer is nobody. No one. There wasn't a single recruit to Noach's tshuva campaign. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. What was the point of Hashem making Noach, so to speak, publicly humiliate himself? For so many years, whenever I looked at him, maybe felt sorry for him, made fun of him, ridiculed him, ostracized him, and didn't even help. Not a single person came back. Had Hashem wanted to save Nach and his family, he could have done it in a much more private way. Nach bought himself a table in your own backyard, no one has to know about it. They all show him anyway. <coughs> and if that's the case, when the time for the Mabu is here, you'll quietly go into the Teva and save yourself. Why the public spectacle? And remember, we're not talking about a few days. We're talking about years and years and years. People came and remember their grandfathers telling about the Meshuggah and Noach who's building his Teva. And 80, 90 years later they came, there he is, he's still doing it. What was the point? So I'd like to suggest an answer. I haven't seen it anywhere, but I believe this is really the chat. First, a little bit of history. We know, even though it's reminisced about fondly, but we know that the generation between the two world wars of Jewry and Europe wasn't as Kaddish as people make out to be. We know that between the triple-pronged attacks of reform, of communism, of Zionism, 
a vast, vast majority of the Jewish people had abandoned the Torah, had taken off one of these other ideologies and were working to create what they thought wronging to be the ideal future. Even Gedalei Olam, people who later on went to become leaders of Klai Yisrael, spoke about how in their youth, when their younger years, there was a real, real temptation to get drawn into the current of one of these other belief systems and abandon Yiddishkeit. We're talking about people of the caliber of Rivaron Kotler, who himself says as a young boy was under significant pressure to drop out of yeshiva to go to university. And in a world, in the atmosphere, so to speak, which everybody was so virulently anti-Torah. It made an atmosphere where more and more people fell to the prevailing way of thinking and got lost to Torah as well. The Rambam already defines this Metzius that a person is influenced by the surrounding culture. Sometimes that influence is stronger, sometimes less so. But in periods like that between the wars, where there was such a powerful, so to speak, communal Yetzirah, that sucked more and more people into its web, more and more children got lost to their families, and more and more Rabbanim, who alive at the time, despaired of being able to salvage anyone for Klai Yisrael. We see this in the writings of the Chafetz Chaim, of other Gedolians at the time, about the extent of the devastation which was brought on Klai Yisrael, and how it's having a snowball effect, how more and more people were giving up Torah mitzvahs and following the streams of communism, socialism, Zionism, reform, whatever else there was. What was the solution? Klai Israel was bleeding profusely, was losing tremendous amounts of people. I've heard even in places which had formerly been bastions of Torah, cities like Prague, Cities like Warsaw, cities like Minsk, cities like Kovno, which are famous in the Torah world of being places where Gedolei Adam lived, which had flourishing yeshivas. But even there, the vast majority of the Jewish population had turned their backs on Judaism. That's how strong the atmosphere, so to speak, of Kfirah, was at the time. 
What was the solution? There were various leaders each tried their own Mahalach. The one I want to speak about maybe one of the most successful is of Yosef Yezl Horovitz who was called the Alta of Nevardok. At a time when most institutionalized so to speak Torah or communities were being lost were shrinking one of the very big successes of the in-between-the-war the, 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 the period was Navardok. began with a small handful of Talmudim in, in Navardok in Red Russia, but spread to a network of yeshivas throughout Poland, Lithuania, Russia, which made up tens of yeshivas and eventually thousands of Talmudim. It was one of the few success stories in the Jewish world at the time. Maybe Bet Yaakov was the other one. And the question is, what was the secret that made Navarak successful? How were they able to withstand, so to speak, the winds blowing from Ascala, from reform, from communism, where so many other good Jews fell. There could be a number of points, but the one I want to focus on, one of the fundamental ideas in the Vardok's Chinuch system, in the Vardok's way of, so to speak, building themselves, is what the altar called the Midah of Amitis. Which means a person's not scared that other people should make fun of him. That other people should ridicule him. A person's not scared of what society thinks of him. And yes, part of the training for Navaradok was to do things specifically to promote to provoke people to make fun, to bring scorn and disdain on themselves. And that was part of the Chinuch. It was famously brought. The Barakabach would go into a chemist and ask to buy nails. Would go into, would go into a hardware shop and ask to buy meat. Are you crazy? This, what do you think this is? What kind of stuff we should all do it into? But it was done by Dafka. We act in a way where everybody would, on the street, would make fun of the Navarakabach. What was the point of that? It wasn't to work in the Midrash another. It wasn't to try and get schar for being in the position of Hashem uh, Kherpasan that here one who hears his own, so to speak, disgrace and doesn't respond. Understand there was a much deeper point here. This was the life jacket that Nevadak provided to its Talmudim. If the nature of people is that they get influenced by the surrounding culture, and the surrounding culture is one which is snowballing downhill, then what's the middle that a person needs, so to speak, to maintain 
a safe barrier between himself and the culture. And that is, don't be afraid that everybody laughs at you. Don't get turned back by ridicule. Don't try and fit in with what people want. And that way I'm always trying to satisfy, so to speak, the, the socially acceptable norm or what the public deem to be good. Get used to everybody laughing at you. Get used to everybody looking askance when they see you in the street. And don't turn back because of that. Because that way, it doesn't make a difference if they're laughing at you because why is that idiot looking for meat in a hardware store? Or they're laughing at you as why is that person still keeping Shabbos in these days? Or they're laughing at you as you're from a backwards uh, medieval culture when the world's progressed and everybody's changed. If a person gets used to taking the ridicule of the culture around him, if a person gets used to being looked at as being strange, as being different, then he no longer tries to curry favor and become a part of that culture. He's used to being ostracized by it. And that was the, the protection the Varak provided from the Haskalah, from the reform, from the, from the communists, from the Zionists, from the socialists, from everybody else it was. Yes, they're a majority. And yes, they're looking down on us. And yes, they're making fun of us. So what? We've trained ourselves that we're not trying to make society like us. We're not trying to find favor by them. We're different. And that liberates a person from trying to fit into the surrounding society or the value system. That was the Chinuch of Navarduk, and that was also the success of Navarduk. I think to some extent the Chaznish tried to recreate that on a different scale. When he tried to build up the Torah world of Eretz Yisrael. After the war, when the Chaznish began his mission, the vast, vast majority of the Jewish population of Eretz Yisrael was secular, atheistic, anti-religious, really a continuation of the socialist, communist, Zionists and various other groups who had made up Eastern Europe before it. And what was the way that the Chaznish wanted to promote a new school of thought? A world of the yeshivas, of B'nai Torah, of Kodal Avrechim. One of the first steps was, which there wasn't so much in Europe, to look different. The, so to speak, compulsory white shirts Titsis out, wearing a hat and jacket, wherever it was. Making the look of a Bentayra something different from the public. And yes, something which is going to invite questions. Something which is going to invite disdain. Something which is going to make the outsiders look at you as if you're strange. Are you still wearing what European clothing here in the Middle East? 
You're still living in an ancient world? Yes. Because if a person gets used to being looked down on by the public, then he loses all interest in trying to emulate the public. He doesn't try to find favor in the eyes of the public. And if that's the case, then he's free from, so to speak, the influence, psychologically or emotionally, that the public exerts. Yes, we invite you to look at down on us. To look at us as being different. That way we're free from trying to feel the need to impress you or to be like you. Now let's look back to the Dara Mabu. How strong was the influence of the society of Dara Mabu? The pervasiveness of Gezel, of Arais, of a world where everybody tried to make the most for himself, allowed himself any physical excess which they wanted. If they had superior power or force, utilized it to their advantage. How strong was that influence? I think you won't find a parallel in history for the power of the influence of the society before the Dara Mabu. I'll give you three examples. Examples which aren't repeated anywhere as far as I'm aware in history. Number one. Their influence on the world around them. When Khazal asked, we understand why people got killed in the Mabu. Why did all the animals get wiped out? With the exception of the two or the seven animals that Nerf brought into the Teva, millions upon millions of animals, birds, insects, whatever there was, got destroyed. What did they do wrong? And Chazal answered that the influence of people was so much that the animals were also being mashchis The animals had also become corrupted. Whereas in the normal course of events, animals only mate within their own species. The animals at the time of the Dara Mabel had, so to speak, imbibed the spirits of the people. And that widespread immorality caused animals to mate with other species as well. They also deserve to get destroyed. Rabbi said, let's ask ourselves, have we ever heard of a parallel to this? Has the world ever sunk to the level of depravity that even animals have been influenced and have started crossbreeding because of the results of the level or so the lack of level the promiscuity of people even in today's wildly permissive and corrupt society we've never heard of animals getting getting influenced that's the first place we see how strong so to speak the societal influence of the Dara Mabul was but I'll give you a second example also unparalleled. The Torah tells us about one tzaddik who lived in those times. A tremendous tzaddik. His name was Chanech. And suddenly, Veinenu, 
כי לא ככה זה אלוקים, השם צוקים אלי. In an era, generations where the normal lifespan was in the 800-900 years, Chanoich, so to speak, left the world as a young man. He was only 365. And why? He was a tzaddik. Rashi says, he was a tzaddik, a tremendous tzaddik. And Hashem said, let me take him while he's still a tzaddik. Before he gets influenced, by the generation around him. And that's something unique as well. Where else do we see that the danger of influence is so strong that even the one tzaddik who is a tzaddik, Hashem has to take him young before he's going to get corrupted. Before he's going to get defiled by the society around him. And my third example. Again, unparalleled. The level of people was so bad. The atmosphere of Dara Mabu was so poisonous that it even was able to makalkal malochim. It could even turn angels into sinners. And the film of Yisubaret, Hazal tell us that two malochim came down in human form to this world and they also got corrupted. And they also became sinners. That's how toxic the environment of the world was then. We understand that just like HaKadosh Baruch Hu had no option but to destroy in the tragic way the Jews of Europe when he felt the atmosphere was such that there was no other Eitzah except for the Nazi persecution and Holocaust. Similarly, it got to the stage where the whole world was so corrupt then Hashem had no answer but to destroy it in the Mabel and start again. So that's the influence of the world we're dealing with. That's how powerful, how pervasive it was. It was Makalka the animals, would have been Makalka the Tzadikim, was Makalka the Malachim. We understand why such a world had to get destroyed. But what about Noach himself? Why didn't Noach follow the same trajectory Chanoach did and get taken away young before he gets influenced by the evil world? And this was the answer to the question before. This was Hashem's Eitzah to Noach. How he's going to remain strong, how he's going to remain different, He's not going to be influenced and affected by the Rishayim around him. Noach was the first Navardika. Go out and let them make fun of you. Let them ridicule you. Let them look at you as somebody that they ostracize. Get used to feeling like that. Because when you do, then you no longer have an, an urge or an interest in trying to appeal to them to like you. To be one with them. You've already created yourself a status as the one who's different. As the one everybody makes fun of. They can make fun of you for building your teva and telling them about the flood in a hundred years time. They can make fun of you for not partaking with them in their arayas and their gazel. And they can make fun of you for keep listening to Hashem. But I'm not going to be influenced anymore. 
I've built that level of amitsus that I don't care what people think. I've invited their disdain, their scorn and their ridicule. And that's good because that frees me from the wants and the feeling that I need to be a part of society. And that's why for 120 years, yes, Nerech was building his table, inviting the abuse, the laughs, the, the ridicule of everybody around him. That's what was protected Nerech. Maybe his care of campaign didn't bring in the sinners around him, but it saved him. That's how Nerech remained the tzaddik. And wasn't influenced by the door around him. Zal Talach said Nerech was ish tomim b'dayraisov. Is a tzaddik in his door. Chazal said that it was, according to one opinion at least, that was a tremendous praise to Nerech. A door so corrupt that even the animals have become promiscuous. A door so corrupt that even the angels have become sinners. Noach remained a tzaddik in such a door. That's only because HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave him the lifeline. Gave him the way to separate himself from the influence of the door. For them to feel that he's different. For them to reject him. And to give him therefore the courage. To stand apart. And that applies in any door. Any door. Which is. Evil. Any door which is corrupt. Any time. Where society has its pull and so to speak has its attraction which drags people away from Torah to be part of the stream flowing downhill of what's acceptable and what's considered politically correct or socially right and it's very hard to stand strong against the current we have the Eitz of Nach. Act in a way that makes them feel you different. Invite, so to speak, their ridicule. Invite them to look down on you because that frees you from the one to please them or to be one with them. The Ramah says at the beginning of Shulchan Aruch, A person has to build that strength that he's not embarrassed of those who make fun of him for his service of Hashem. Because then, like Noach, even in generation which is slated for destruction, and that includes the animals, includes the whole world, a person singles himself out as being the tzaddik in that door, is to a special siyat of Dishmaya, is to be saved.